NoSQL is becoming the must-have for organizations needing to manage data in ways that traditional relational databases were just not designed for. This is a vital element of digital transformation because it factors in that lesser seen but equally vital back-end component, data. So the industry media has been talking about this, obviously, and in this special media-focused edition of the Cloud Tweaks Couchbase podcast series, Matthew Groves, product marketing manager at Couchbase, and I are going to look at a few selected media stories about NoSQL. This is the Cloud Tweaks podcast, where we look at developments and stories dealing with cloud, cybersecurity, and other areas of business tech. I'm your host, Steve Prentice. This episode is the third of three co-presented with Matthew in which we look at the shift to NoSQL as part of the post-pandemic digital transformation. The previous two episodes are also available for you to check out. If you haven't already, just go to cloudtweaks.com forward slash podcasts. So we're looking at five industry articles, all of which are linked in the show notes to this episode. One looks at the industry. One is a where are we now in terms of databases. We have one about cloud and scalability. And we also have one about Couchbase, as well as great database companies to watch out for. So first off, there's a new SQL database for that. This was published at datanami.com in July 2021. It's a really good primer on what various types of new SQL databases there are. So I know we covered this a little bit in the first episode, but just to reflect on this particular article, there are at least five different kinds of database structures or approaches here. So what do they do? And do you have any examples or particular industries or particular setups that would demand any one of these? I know that the key value is the one that you work with, but what do all of these do? What makes them different in a sort of a two-minute summary? So I think it's a it's a good starting point to hear to talk about NoSQL databases in a more specific way because the NoSQL term is very shallow in the meaning, right? So it's much better to dive into these different types. And, and the first one, uh, as mentioned in this article, is actually the relational database type, which has been around. It's not a NoSQL database, but it's been around for a long, long time. It was designed, uh, as the article mentioned, in the '70s by EF Cod and the SQL language added to it later by uh, Donald Chamberlain, Raymond Boyce. That's really good history to know. Those are names that uh, any database uh, nerd like myself should know. Uh, those databases were designed in the uh, 70s uh, to solve a specific kind of problem, which was disks were very expensive. And uh, the idea was to store data in this way where you're going to completely reduce or eliminate uh, duplicate information and still be able to tr- retrieve it in an efficient way. And those databases uh, dominated uh, for a long time. And to, to some extent, they still dominate to this day. Um, and they've made, gone through a lot of changes since then, but they're, they're still fundamentally the same technology as back in the 70s. It's designed for a single server, uh, not for a publicly facing web, uh, you know, web uh, application or mobile application that hundreds of thousands, millions of people are going to use. And that's where these NoSQL databases kind of came into play. And uh, so the, f- the four types mentioned here, there's lots of other types as well. But these are kind of the big four of NoSQL. Is, uh, the first one is key value. And this is the kind of a really simple, uh, most simple implementation of a database you can think of. Each piece of data has a key, and you can look data up by that key, assuming you have the key, uh, and, uh, and uh, modify data with that key. Now, these are really simple, uh, simple APIs. Uh, and they really lend themselves well to use cases like, um, I don't know if there's an industry that would apply to this particular use cases, but caching, uh, session store, um, 
and and anything where it's you're dealing with maybe one piece of data at a time or or you know a handful of pieces of data um, that you you don't have to necessarily join together or run reports on because it's a again, very very simple API uh, and there's lots of examples of that there so uh, that's that's how I look at, at a key value store. Okay, then how about the others? The next one on this uh, article is uh, the wide column store. Um, and this is, it kind of looks like a relational database, which I think is what is very appealing about it um, because you, you have rows and columns and tables. Um, but the difference is that there's more flexibility here is that uh, you can add columns to a row itself without adding columns to a whole table. Uh, and adding those, adding those columns is a very inexpensive operation. So you can end up with very, very wide data. Um, so this was kind of the, the big table paper from Google was kind of kicked off these, these wide column store uh, databases. Um, now they, they have a query language that kind of looks like SQL, but it is absolutely a, a very limited subset of SQL. So kind of some of the things you could do like joins and aggregations and things like that are, are uh, a lot more challenging to do. Even though the language looks like SQL, it's, it's a very limited subset of it. Uh, so this is great, uh, kind of uh, a, a write-heavy database if you're doing a lot of writes, but not necessarily a lot of reads or, or certainly not a lot of complex reads. Uh, so things like uh, logs, uh, t- uh, time series, IoT data, in, in some cases, uh, it's great for that. Um, I was thinking of like a gas meter example where you're taking readings every five minutes or something on, on gas meters for all your customers. Uh, you know, this, this will be the, a great database for reading those meters, but then actually doing the analytics and querying on them, you might want to use a different tool for that. I like the gas meter example. That's very helpful. So what's next? Yeah, the next one's my favorite is document databases. Uh, this is the kind of closest to a general purpose NoSQL database, I think, that exists. It's, uh, it's storing data. in. It's like a key value store. But the data format has a specific, or the data value has a specific format. So typically that's JSON. It can be something else, but the industry has kind of settled on JSON. Uh, and this is, um, you know, JSON's a, a well-understood format for data. And so it's perfect for this because there's JSON serializers in every language and platform known to man, which makes it a great general purpose tool. Um, and Actually, there was a quote from Donald Chamberlain, who I mentioned earlier in the podcast, one of the uh, creators of the SQL language, that said, JSON, if you kind of squint and turn sideways a little bit, it looks like a table. So I think, you know, the, the NoSQL approach that most closely approximates the relational approach, I think that's why document databases are probably the most popular NoSQL database out there. Um, and so, again, general purpose Certainly all the things I mentioned for key value still apply, but then you can uh, use it for a lot of content management or places where the data is flexible and you have a lot of it. So catalogs, uh, I mentioned content management, um, uh, where you're ingesting data. So again, IoT, where you have a lot of different varied sources of data you want to ingest. Those are all great um, use cases for that. So the article also digs into graph databases and multimodal as well. Uh, Graph databases is a very interesting uh, set of databases where uh, data is represented as both a piece of data and the connection between them is also a piece of data. Uh, So some really interesting things you can do with this uh, in terms of traversing your data and the connections between them. So it's really good for uh, the identification of, say, outliers of data. So you're looking for fraud detection or you're looking for something like... uh, 
um, product recommendations. A graph database can be very useful in that situation. And then the last thing I wanted to mention, uh, this article covers it a little bit, is the idea of multi-model databases. And these are all nice, neat little buckets we can put databases into. But the reality is that many NoSQL databases, the mature ones at least these days, they often cover two or three or more of these models, uh, whether it's through API or whether it's uh, through data storage. So you can often find a database that can handle more than just one approach. In, in fact, it's very rare to find a pure key value store still out there. Um, just, you know, only key value store. That, that's pretty rare to find these days. So there's a lot of overlap between them. So what we seem to be getting into is the idea of being able to extrapolate data in multidimensional fashions rather than just the good old-fashioned rows and columns of earlier databases. And it's, it's amazing to think about how, as you said before, even the connection point can have data. Now, that's really fascinating. So moving on to the next article, Why Cloud Databases Are Taking Over the World. This was published in the Register in July 2021. They've got a focus on scalability because there's more space to put stuff. We're creating more stuff to put in that space, which is kind of Parkinson's law. But it obviously has enormous benefits as well. So the benefits of cloud databases that the register is describing here, what are the benefits of cloud? And why is it growing in such a fashion? Yeah, so I think it depends on who you ask. Uh, you get different reasons why, uh, why they prefer cloud. Um, I, I come from a perspective of being a developer. So some of the things to me uh, about cloud and cloud databases that appeal to me is that there's less infrastructure that me or my team or my company has to manage ourselves. So, you know, I used to work in a, a building that had a room called a server room, and that's where we kept the servers. Uh, and, you know, if something happened to the servers, we had to, not me specifically, because I would just probably mess it up more, but we had a team of people that would go in there and manage the machines and uh, upgrade them and fix them and repair them. Uh, and, you know, depending on what you're doing, that might be worthwhile. But for a lot of companies, that's just, a lot of overhead. And, you know, if you're a company and you're not in the, you know, providing uh, servers, providing infrastructure business, then you want to save your resources to focus on the things that you're actually good at, your core competencies, as, we, as we'd say in, in the business school. Um, so the cloud allows you to kind of let someone else handle all that data center work uh, on, on, you know, and, and give you uh, economies of scale while they're at it. Um, and, and from, again, from a developer's point of view, or even from an architect's point of view, uh, if I want to try out a new service or a database or a tool, uh, you know, if I want to do that myself, my own machine, I have to install the software, learn how to configure it, learn how to tweak it, uh, learn what the error messages are, all those things. Whereas if I go to the cloud, it's a, it's a few clicks maybe in like Azure, AWS, or Google, where I can spin up a new service, try it out. And then I can I can shut it down, destroy it. Um, it's kind of the same appeal as uh, like a Docker or Docker desktop. It's a, it makes spinning something up kind of a lower cost transaction. So I, I'm a little more free to uh, experiment with something. Uh, and then of course, as we see AWS and Azure sort of grow and expand, they they keep adding new services all the time, um, uh, which you know can be a blessing, can be a curse. But uh, one of the things that they do really well as if you are locked into Amazon or locked into Azure, all those services talk to and communicate with each other and they integrate very easily. So if you've bought into that whole ecosystem, uh, you know, that, that depends on your vendor and your preferences there, but um, any, any new tool that they're likely to add in the future is going to integrate in some way with their existing cloud tools. And you can't say that the same of, of non-cloud software, uh, generally speaking. 
And so with that always comes the drawbacks. So what are the drawbacks of this? Yeah, so drawbacks or, or I'd say challenges, I think is a nice way to put it, right? Is Because uh, sometimes they can be overcome. Sometimes sometimes you have to have grin and bear it, right? But uh, the one I consistently hear specifically about databases is uh, is billing. Because uh, a lot of the, the cloud uh, services are, they're kind of billing per, um, you know, per unit of compute time or, or resources that are being used. Uh, and that can be uh, a benefit if, if you, you know, you have, a, you have all this transparency into what you're being billed for, but it can also be a drawback in that, you know, if you are writing a query, let's say that uh, maybe you didn't optimize in exactly the right way, you might end up with a very large surprise bill at the end of the month. Uh, so that's something you have to, as a developer now, or as an architect, you have to also learn uh, if I write this query, how much is it going to cost me in literally in dollars over a month? Um, so if you know, you got to think about those billing concerns as you're building an application. Uh, and the other one, and this may not be a concern for every organization out there, it really depends on on their goals. Is we talked about this, all the integration, all these services provide. But if I buy completely into Amazon, then I'm you know I'm maybe I'm locking myself into just using Amazon, uh, and so I, I may lose some terms of uh, business terms, some sort of um, negotiation ability. Um, I may uh, also, you know, if Amazon has problems or if their data center has a problem, well, then I'm stuck uh, with with waiting on Amazon to get that fixed and get that back up. And it doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. And when it does happen, the internet knows it <laughs> as half the internet goes down, right? Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, diversifying across multiple providers, let's say I wanted to diversify across Azure and Amazon, uh, then I maybe can't take as much advantage of all those individual cloud services because they're dependent on Azure specific things and I can't port those over to Amazon. So uh, vendor lock-in is a challenge that we can work around. And the last one I want to mention, and this is very database specific, is API compatibility. So Amazon and Microsoft, they have uh, built uh, kind of their own versions of open source databases uh, and you know rebranded them. Uh, and they they claim API compatibility with those databases. And you know for the most part, they do an okay job. But ultimately, you know those APIs are are not in their control. Uh, right. So uh, if I'm creating a uh, an implementation of say MySQL in Amazon, I think that's what they use for one of their uh, databases. Then MySQL controls the API, and if they release a new version, well, then Amazon has to play catch up with that. And uh, you know that can be uh, a problem if you're locking yourself into maybe an older version of the API. You can't take advantage of the newer features uh, until again until Amazon gets around to actually updating it. So there's two things that are butting heads in my mind here. One is you've got a vendor lock-in challenge, and you've also got the notion of integration between cloud services. So I'm just a little confused, perhaps, as to are these two separate concepts? Are we stuck with working with one particular vendor, but if there is a certain amount of integration between the cloud services, wouldn't that help to dissolve the, the problem somewhat? Or are these two completely different buckets? Yeah. So what I'm referring to maybe is maybe the confusing part is you know Azure builds their own Azure-specific services. So like the, let's say there's an Azure function. It's a, uh, what we call serverless computing. You can build an Azure function with C-sharp, JavaScript, or whatever. Uh, Amazon has their own kind of version of that called Lambda. But if I build my code for Azure Functions, I can't just port that over to, to Amazon 
Lambda directly. Uh, that's just not, uh, it's just not a straightforward thing. There are some things, however, that all the clouds uh, kind of support. Uh, and one of those major parts of it is a Kubernetes. And so if you're building for Kubernetes, that means you can deploy to Kubernetes on Amazon and you can deploy to Kubernetes on Azure um, with, with very little impact um, to, you know, to how you're building it. So that allows you to, to pursue like a multi-cloud strategy or even a hybrid cloud strategy. If you want to, you can build it and then deploy it anywhere in, in Kubernetes or in Docker or other similar kind of uh, open source APIs that all the cloud vendors support. And so that's one way to get around that vendor lock-in uh, issue, if that is a concern for you. For some companies, they're all in on Amazon and they're totally fine with that. And if that works for them, then that's fine. So that's a great description of the benefits. And as you said, the challenges of the different kinds of cloud-based databases. So next we have the Venture Beat article. This is an article that is referring to Couchbase, and its title is a quote from you. 61% of digital architects report past tech decisions made project completion difficult. And it also speaks about the existing reliance on legacy databases. So your research is showing that there is a problem of over-reliance on legacy databases. Yeah, this is a very similar survey to one we discussed in the past episode. So if you haven't listened to that, definitely go, go back and check it out. Um, but this, the audience for this one's a little different. So this, instead of tech leaders, we're focusing specifically on architects. This is a, uh, another Couchbase-driven survey here. Um, but the results, I think, are, are relatively similar uh, in, the, in the fact that uh, what's discussed here, what we kind of glean from the results is that uh, many are kind of heavily invested into those legacy databases uh, and, and the skills that go with those databases. And those are two separate things we discussed last time as well, kind of the skills and the technology as being separate uh, buckets to invest in. Um, but we've found that a lot of people are locked in to those databases. Um, and uh, I think Couchbase is a unique position, as we discussed last time, that uh, the skills portion of that can also be applied in part or maybe entirely uh, to a NoSQL database such as Couchbase, especially when it comes to SQL. Uh, SQL is a skill, as, as, as we said, it's been around since the late 70s. Uh, lots of developers, lots of architects and DBAs know how to write SQL, and they've invested heavily in those skills. And so if they could apply those same skills to a NoSQL database, they can get kind of the best of both worlds there. and get yeah, They can get all the skills that uh, they uh, invested in from the relational database world and apply them to uh, the NoSQL world and get all the benefits of those databases as well. So the next story we have is in IoT World Today and is entitled Using NoSQL and Embedded Databases to Prevent Corrupted Systems. And this one has a story about Ryanair, I believe. Yeah, uh, so Ryanair uh, came to uh, Couchbase some, some time ago. Uh, and they're, they're a, uh, you know, people in the States may not be as familiar with Ryanair, but they are a a large, low-cost airline uh, in uh, serving Europe and, and other parts of the world. I don't. I think there's a few that come to the states. I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, but they had a, a mobile application for booking flights, um, and um, they uh, identified some problems with this application in that it was uh, it was uh, very slow uh, to respond to a customer interacting with it. And as, as we know from the web and, and as we can uh, apply on, on mobile, the slower it takes for something to happen, the less likely a customer is to uh, have the patience 
to go through the whole process and actually make a purchase. And so that you know, they still might book a flight with Ryanair, but now maybe they're going to call in on, on a phone line and engage a, a, a customer support, which is more costly. Or maybe they're going to look at a different airline or, uh, you know, maybe they'll just put it off for later, something like that. Uh, and so what uh, what that application was doing, it was, uh, this is my understanding of it, is what, uh, it was actually uh, anytime you'd take an action, it would have to make a round trip uh, from the uh, from your mobile device to a data center, perhaps to a legacy a database in the process, and then all the way back to your phone every single time. Um, and that is uh, that is an approach that can you know with, with enough users uh, trying to use this application that can lead to uh, lots of slowdown and, and even uh, downtime. Uh, and so what they did was they uh, we you know they approached Couchbase and we have this solution called Couchbase Mobile which is a database that can be embedded right on the device. Uh, and what makes it unique is that it has an offline first approach. So as you interact with your application and go through and book your flights, anytime you use a database, you're, write, you're reading and writing to a database locally on your device. And then uh, and that works whether you're online or not, whether you're in a remote campsite with poor uh, Wi-Fi or whether you're you know, uh, right next door to a Verizon building. But then behind the scenes, there's a tool called Sync Gateway, which will then, as you get connection, uh, sync up the data with the data on the uh, on the data center or the edge data center or what have you. And that will uh, basically be transparent to the user of the site. So they're clicking through and making choices about their flight. And it's really, really responsive because it's just reading and writing right there on the device. And then as soon as they're, they're done, ready to make the transaction, you know, they'll have to get connection eventually. But uh, that, that last hit of latency can wait until the end of the application. And so the really cool thing, the end result of this is there is a video, and I don't know if I can find it for you. I think it's a great video to watch, is showing a flight being booked in the old app and the new app side by side. And just the incredible difference in the time it takes. Uh, to, to book before and after you go from the different approaches. Uh, so I think that was a really good uh, use case to, to kind of show off an embedded NoSQL database. The Ryanair story is really good, obviously, because we've all experienced booking flights in some way or the other. Just one last point here, then we'll just briefly look at the last article, because even though we're talking about an app, the Ryanair story is about a physical, tangible fleet of airplanes. And that's one of the things that is big in the IoT world story as well. So would you speak a little bit about the application to the Internet of Things world, or maybe the industrial Internet of Things world, which is obviously the growing other half of the business that people are somewhat less aware of, but still in relation to IoT? Where does it stand? Sure. So IoT, Internet of Things, um, is a, it's a great use case for NoSQL, and I think document databases specifically, uh, or, or you know, even beyond IoT, any use case that involves ingesting data from a number of different sources, uh, different sources, different vendors, different systems, um, because you know anyone who's worked in software for a long time uh, has had to integrate with with third parties, with systems that are outside their control, and ingesting data from them. With a relational approach, if you want to put that data into a table, then it has to match up with that schema that you have in the table. Now, uh, unfortunately, uh, like I said, we can't necessarily control that third party. So they may decide to just one day change the name of a field or add a new field 
uh, or do any number of things. They, hopefully they'll give you some notice, but they may not always do that. Um, and so if your system is dependent on putting data right into that, that rigid schema in a relational legacy database, you may have a failure there, or you may lose some data in the process. Uh, that's, that's the corruption I think they're talking about in this article. Whereas a NoSQL database, you don't have that de the schema defined up front. Now, ultimately, you're going to need to know that something changed, but what's going to happen is the ingestion of data is always, it's not going to fail because a field was changed or a field was added or removed. It's still going to get ingested. You have to deal with that sometime you know, down the line, down the pipeline somewhere. Um, but that integration point uh, becomes less fragile. And so when IoT, you have hundreds of different types of devices that could, that could change different vendors, different third-party systems. These, these could all change, and, and that's, to an extent, beyond your control. And so this kind of helps you bring that into, uh, into, into control and not to worry so much about that, uh, that failure of integration, that uh, corruption, that mismatch of data. So I think we can conclude by just having a brief look at this Data Management Solutions Review article. This is entitled DBTA 100 2021, 14 Database Management Vendors That We're Tracking. And it was published in solutionsreview.com in June 2021 and refers to the annual listing of data, information management, big data and data science companies that are preparing for the future, as compiled by Database Trends and Applications, DBTA. The listing talks about the vendors that matter most, and of course, you are in there. So just in terms of looking at this wide variety of names, some of whom are very large and some of whom are very new, it's nice that you are listed at the top here. Do you find that when you compare yourself to the other ones here, I mean, if I'm looking at some of them like IBM, obviously, and Microsoft, we're dealing with the giants of the industry. How would you want yourself to be differentiated against these 8,000-pound gorillas that surround us? <laughs> Right. Well, you know, I think with uh, Couchbase, we talked about this a little early, early on, is the idea of a multi-model database. And, uh, you know, uh, when you're doing your research and looking at a list like this of all the uh, top databases that uh, DBTA is tracking, uh, I think, you know, asking yourself uh, or, or doing your research and, and saying, what categories does this database fit into? Uh, which use cases does it handle well? And which ones doesn't it handle well? I, I think... Uh, again, Couchbase is kind of unique in, in that at, at its core, it's a key value database, yes, but it also acts as a document database because you can store data as JSON and, and validate that JSON data. It also has a built-in search indexes on the same data, so you don't have to bring in another uh, search tool just to add search capability to, to Couchbase. Uh, it's got a, similarly, it's got a built-in analytics component, so if you're doing BI, and doing very complex ad hoc queries uh, over that IoT data, for instance, that's also built into Couchbase. So you don't have to create an ETL to move the data somewhere else, some other tool. Um, some of the newer features of Couchbase, I believe we discussed these in the first episode we had together, is that it can handle relational style data now. So data that's in the, the kind of familiar relational format and structures, but in Couchbase uh, similar Couchbase structures. So if you want to go from relational to Couchbase, that transitions relatively straightforward. And of course, we just mentioned mobile. Mobile is a big part of that. You know, how well these, does this database, if mobile is important to you, can I run my data in an offline first capacity uh, where it works in that maybe low signal place? Or do I have to always be connected to it? So these are, these are questions. You, you know, doing your research, there's lots of databases out there. If there was a perfect database for everyone, there would only be the one. Um, but all these databases offer 
different sets of priorities and different features. Um, some are more modern focused, some are more legacy focused. So th those are things I would look at as I would browse through uh, what is a, you know, becoming a very large uh, market of different database players. And certainly there's 14 on this list you can go through that uh, some of them certainly we've all heard of, and some, some of them uh, may be brand new players that I've never heard of yet. This is a great place to start your research. Yes, I think that's very good. Where you point out here, this isn't about comparing apples to apples. These are all very different in their strengths, their weaknesses, and their focuses, which I think is helpful to someone who looks at a list of 14 and asks, what's the difference? Are they all the same? No, they are not. So I think definitely worthwhile that we just cover your last point here and talk about your awards. <laughs> well, I, because this was a DBTA article, I thought I would just bring this up as a, a fun little tidbit, is that uh, DBTA has a Reader's Choice Award uh, every year. So the, the readers of DBTA, the subscribers, vote on their choice of database. And uh, I don't know if the 2021 awards are out yet. I'm not sure. But I know that Couchbase has won awards in the past for Best Overall Database, Best NoSQL Database, and, and been a finalist in a number of other categories. Again, because it's a multi-model approach. It can be in multiple categories. Uh, so, yeah, it, uh, that's an interesting award because it's it's voted on by those readers. It's it's uh, you have to be a subscriber of DBTA to actually vote on it. So it's an award we're very proud of. I just thought I would bring that up as a fun little tidbit. Absolutely. It's peer recognition because these are the readers who know you and who know the business and the technology. So, Matthew, I must say this has been an extremely educational half hour plus with you. You have a great depth of knowledge on all things database, and it has been a treat to walk through these media articles with you today, as well as the other two podcasts that we have recorded. So as a close, just a reminder that this is the third of three podcast episodes we have done together, and all three of these are available at cloudtweaks.com forward slash podcasts. Look for episodes 12, 13, and 14. Hosting for the CloudTweaks podcast comes from ISC Squared, and we thank them for their ongoing support. To learn about and to join the ISC Squared community of cybersecurity leaders, visit isc2.org. And as for us, you can check us out at cloudtweaks.com and follow us on Twitter at CloudTweaks. If your company is looking for some great exposure to thousands of decision makers in the IT, cloud, and related industries worldwide, please get in touch. We can craft a campaign that will get you noticed through our website, social media, and newsletter channels, all of which enjoy substantial readership. If you like what you hear, please consider subscribing, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, and tell just one more person about us. We are always interested in learning what we can do to bring quality news to you. Until next time, I'm Steve Prentice. Stay safe and thanks for listening.